The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So we're looking at chapter 9 for those of you who are following along uh, in Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart. And the title here is The River of Feelings. And some of you know the Buddha in the different ways that he taught, different kind of models he used to help understand the mind. He uh, strongly encouraged deepening understanding of feelings. And here it's a real technical meaning. We use that word feeling a lot. But here feeling uh, in particular is referring to the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of experience. In one of the real jewels, subtle and uh, profound teachings the Buddha gave was something called dependent origination. And it describes how it is that this experience comes to be. From our conventional point of view, um, we take a lot of ownership of our present moment experience. Like somehow I'm participating, I'm co-creating how it is for me right now. But you probably know in the way the Buddha described his insight, his understanding of his mind, of experience, there was no center in his experience in one's experience. So how does, how would the Buddha then go ahead and explain, because it seems like there's a center and it seems like, at least from time to time, that I'm suffering, I'm stressed, I'm tight. So how could the Buddha explain that experience of suffering if in fact there's no center, nobody behind what we call experience? And this articulation called dependent origination or codependent arising, he's explaining, he's um, articulating what he saw directly in his experience how it is that the experience of suffering arises without there being a sufferer, someone who's suffering. And and one of the interesting, uh, important pieces of this teaching is this relevance of mindfulness of feeling states. Being aware of feeling states really helps to um, break this pattern of suffering without anybody suffering. But still, that's our experience, isn't it? I mean, a lot of the time we do feel tight, we feel stressed, we feel burdened by life. So the way the Buddha describes, uh, uses this model, this teaching model, is he talks about 12 lengths, sometimes more lengths or fewer lengths, sometimes 12 lengths. It's not so much the exact lengths that are important, but the interdependent nature of these different mental qualities or mental aspects. So he talks about, you know, and there's really not so much one place that it begins. So it's a, it's like a, a pattern, like when there's this, there's that. So when any one of those pieces are there, it implies the rest. And when the chain is broken, when one piece is missing, then the whole thing can't be there. So. He describes it in terms of ignorance, which means simply means not seeing things as they are. 
So this is uh, something I'm assuming we all recognize, how much of the time our way of understanding or seeing, knowing our experience, is diluted. And then not seeing things as they actually are lead, inevitably leads to mental formation, sort of leftover bits, you could think of it. You know, when we're not in alignment, when our view or understanding is not in alignment with the way things are, then there's going to be friction, there's going to be um, unfinished business. And these are the tendencies, the inclinations of the mind, mental formations. Mental formations leads to consciousness, mind and body, and sensitivity, the sixth sense gate. So when we have unfinished business, this unfinished business needs a place to express itself and basically sets in motion is codependently arising with a mind and a body with sensitivity. So then we have this basic human experience, a mind and body, and it's sensitive in six ways. We see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, and we think. So the body and mind is sensitive. As soon as we're sensitive, we're going to have contact, right? We're going to see things and hear things and touch things and smell and taste things and think things. And because of the mental formations, this unfinished business, when I see something or taste something or smell something or touch something or think something, it's going to have a particular charge depending on the unfinished business, the mental formations. The mental formations are going to be activated depending on the particular content, or contact, the particular experience that I have. So I see Ramesh, and when I see that, when I have that experience of seeing and then thinking about Ramesh, then it activates certain mental formations, certain tendencies of the mind. They all come online. And one of those, one aspect of that sort of background is a feeling tone. So all of this is automatic. As long as there's ignorance, there's going to be mental formations. There will be a mind and body with sensitivity. There will be contact or sense experience. And there will be a feeling tone associated with that sense contact. It's automatic. We can't have a sense experience without a feeling tone of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. Like right now, we're all having an experience, and we're all having a feeling tone associated with that experience. And just because you don't know what the feeling tone is, is it pleasant, is it unpleasant, is it neutral, doesn't mean we don't have a feeling tone. It just means the mind isn't trained to notice the feeling tone, to be interested in it. And like I said, this is all automatic. You can't really break the chain anywhere there. Once there's ignorance, there's going to be contact and feeling tone. We're going to experience, as a human being, once we're a human being, we're going to have contact, and we're going to have sometimes very pleasant experiences, hopefully, guaranteed to have very unpleasant experiences, and probably a lot of neutral experience. And this just comes with the territory. Now, if there's no mindfulness, then when we have an unpleasant pleasant or neutral experience, 
because of the mental formations, because of the conditioning in the mind, there's going to be a reaction. The mind is going to grasp what's pleasant and push away, react with aversion with what is unpleasant and ignore what's neutral. So you've probably heard this hundreds of times. And we can see that we want to directly observe how that is the very nature of the mind. Contact, feeling tone, this sort of strongly conditioned behavior of pushing away unpleasant, grabbing pleasant, ignoring neutral when there's no mindfulness. And that's what we call craving. That activity of grabbing or wanting the pleasant, not wanting the unpleasant, <coughs> ignoring the neutral, that's called craving. And as the mind begins to uh, not just like want it, but do something about that wanting, or not just being afraid of it, but do something about that fear or aversion, then it morphs into grasping. So now it's not so much that we don't like, but the, the whole sort of um, mind begins to orient around the getting rid of what's unpleasant or the getting of what's pleasant. And this becomes grasping. And then the whole sense of self is constructed around that grasping. I want to become the person that gets rid of this unpleasant experience. I want to be the person that gets this pleasant, can hold on to this pleasant experience. I'm the person that doesn't care about all this neutral experience. I don't need to feel the t-shirt against the skin. It's neutral. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything to me. I don't want to pay attention. I don't care about you. All of this, you know, we build, we build who we are upon craving and grasping. And this stage is called becoming. We're becoming that person. We've got an identity now of being the person is trying to get rid of, trying to get, trying to ignore. When we're somebody, there's birth and death. You can't be, the mind can't congeal into a somebody. It doesn't matter, I'm not even talking about like somebody in terms of a lifetime, but you know, let's say something good happens and you experience some success and that success is pleasant, right? And you crave that pleasantness. You want more of that success, that recognition in your job or recognition with your friends, being seen as a competent or beautiful person. And you crave it and you grasp it and you construct a, uh, a sense of self around it. And you take birth as that person who people love until you have another sense contact. Right? We're sensitive and eventually there's going to be another one. And then that person we've constructed, the person who feels good because people like them, now gets challenged because of the next sense experience. So inevitably, whatever sense of self we create, it's vulnerable for change. Think about, in the course of this lifetime, how many senses of self we've had. Shameful senses of self, exalted senses of self, and everything in between. Every one of those people have died. We have died countless deaths, psychological deaths already in this lifetime. Now, we don't really take that in because as one sense of self is dying, we jump, you know, jump ship, and land in the next sense of self. You know, so like if I had some success and I was feeling pretty exalted, and then I do something really stupid, 
and it's really painful, and I react to that pain by, you know, doing some, you know, I construct either blaming somebody, so I'm the person who thinks this person has caused my pain, or I blame myself, and I'm the person who hates myself because I'm so stupid, that we jump ship from the exalted person to being the stupid person or the blaming person. So that's who we've become. That person is also going to be born, live for a while, and die. Every identity we've ever had has been born, of course, existed for a while, and then ceased to exist. How else could we be the person, you know, whatever sense of self we have right now, how could we have this sense of self if all the previous senses of selves haven't died? They have ceased to exist. Many, many, even into in one day, how many different senses of self we've had. And when we're in this uh, in this mode of becoming, and then having to lose our sense of self, even losing afflictive senses of self is disturbing. Because at least an afflictive sense of self, like I'm no good, nobody likes me, even that sense of self creates a sense of like ground. Okay, at least you know, at least I know what's going on. I'm bad. I'm no good. And so uh, to constantly have that sort of be falling apart or having to be renewed, you know, so. It may seem like we have a consistent sense of self, but it ceases, and then we reconstruct it. We look for another, in a sense, we are looking for sense experience, contact, that will trigger a same feeling, that will trigger that same pattern of craving, grasping, becoming, so we become that person again, and that person dies, and we become it again. But we're actually the next, you know, the next iteration of that person, of that pattern over and over and over again. You can really see this with little children. It's Adults tend to cover it up better. But when you watch children, and if they're in a funk, you know, let's say you're watching your niece or nephew, or if you have a kid, or your teacher, and a kid is having a bad day, it's in a real funk, nothing's working well, and you know, there's that sort of, something goes wrong, they explode, they maybe tantrum a little bit, and then they're in that sort of, uh, you know, kind of pouty, weepy place. And it's like uh, you can just get a sense of the mental formations, you know, the ignorance, like the misperception and the mental formations that are setting in motion the consciousness and the mind and body and the sensitivity and leading up to the next contact and the feeling tone that arises then with that contact, contact that sense experience, that then creates the tendency to be reborn as that pouty kid again. You know, confirming sort of, uh, not even confirming that same pouty child, but allowing for the next pouty child to arise with some gusto for a bit until it ceases, loses steam, and the child recreates it. And if we're fortunate, we actually start to see this in our own lives where we're recreating or we're sort of allowing the self to be recreated you know, in our own image. But not in our own image in, in, a, in a lasting sense, but in our own image in the previous birth. You know, the 
might even be just a few seconds that existence lasted. But the tendency is for a continuity. So this is what the Buddha means by rebirth, moment to moment. And he describes this as not being that much different from the moment when the body dies and then the next moment rebirth in another body, another womb or wherever, however that works. That the moment to moment in this lifetime is not so different except and that's you know relatively special moment, this physical being, this physical body rather, falls away. But the the same tendencies that have been driving the rebirthing in this lifetime, that mind stream is driving the rebirthing in the next, wherever it goes next. It just happens to have a different external environment when it arises. And on and on, as long as it has steam. Like some famous quote of Trungpa Rinpoche when someone asked him what gets reborn and he said something like your neurotic, one's neurotic tendencies are what get reborn. Or another way of saying that is it's our unfinished business. The ignorance and mental formations, that is what keeps it going. So how do we break this chain? Well, the Buddha emphasized a couple places, but in particular, being mindful of feeling. Because like I said, there's really nothing one can do between consciousness, uh, mental formations, consciousness, mind and body, sensitivity, contact, feeling. That all just arises. Arises together, codependently. It's just there. We have a moment of experience. Arising out of ignorance, mental formations, consciousness, mind and body, sensitivity, sense contact, and feeling. All of that kind of, you could say, comes as a package. Then the question is, what we do with that package? Well, unless we get instructed, unless we're fortunate one way or another to get um, reminded of the possibility of just being mindful of that moment of sense experience and feeling that's arising with it, we'll just continue with the craving, grasping, becoming, birth and death, more ignorance, mental formations, and on and on like that. But when, however it happens for us, we have the wherewithal to be mindful of feeling, then all of a sudden there's a possibility of something different. Because when we're mindful of a yucky feeling or mindful of a pleasant feeling or mindful of a neutral feeling, then that mindfulness allows, like we're mindful of the feeling, and we're mindful of the tendency to crave, to want it if it's pleasant, to not want it if it's unpleasant, to ignore it if it's neutral, we can notice that tendency without acting it out. There's a choice there when there's mindfulness that's not there when we're not mindful. If I'm not mindful and I experience something unpleasant, like if I'm just sitting absorbed in a movie and my knee starts to hurt, I'm just going to move my leg. You know, the unpleasant sensation leads to aversion and a reaction to the aversion, which is to move the leg. Now, I'm not saying moving the leg is wrong. I'm just saying that that's just automatic. You know, or, uh, you know, you can just think of all the different moments of not being mindful when you experience something really pleasant, you know. 
you're walking along and there's a delicious piece of candy on the floor and no one's taking it out of the wrapper. You know, if you're not mindful, you just pick it up, throw it in your mouth and eat it. And again, it's not that that's bad, but there's not like a, a contemplation that, oh, I like that. And, you know, sort of, sort of sitting with the liking. So there's the liking and the noticing of the tendency to want to eat it. But when we're there mindfully, there may be all kinds of impulses like, you know, I had a big lunch, so I'm not really hungry at all. You know, or sugar's not good for me. So when we're mindful, it's like we feel the impulse to grab what we like, but we also are aware of all the consequences. It's like we, we just intuit how it all works. That's what mindfulness allows. So it's not saying, oh, you shouldn't, or you should. It's just understanding. That's what mindfulness does. We're understanding the feeling. We're understanding what sort of unfinished business it triggers, that whole pattern that comes online. We're understanding it. Understanding it in Buddhist sense means we understand causes and conditions, what it leads to, what person it sets in motion. Like we get a choice. Do I want to become that person? Do I want to become this person? So with all the different possibilities there in the moment, we get to basically make a choice about the future. Who we're going to be in the next, the, in the following moments. Are we going to take birth as this person in the next few moments, as this person? And you can just imagine, like with that example with the candy on the floor. We could probably, with time, brainstorm a hundred people that might be born. You know, there could be the person, the proud, Buddhist practitioner who's not going to, you know, eat the candy because he or she is, you know, so far beyond the need for sense experience or sense pleasure, you know. And we could be born in that sort of realm of being full of ourselves. Or we could be born in the sort of hungry ghost person, you know, like, <laughs> gimme, gimme, gimme. You know, and where maybe they drop some more, you know, so we're not, we don't even taste the one candy bar. We're looking, you know, did they drop any others? If they dropped one, they could have dropped another. Or all kinds of things, you know, the sort of neurotic person about germs, you know, and like, you know, really looking at the wrapper, making sure that there hasn't been penetrated in any way and that it's absolutely clean. And just to be sure, we'll scrape the outer coat of the candy bar away before we eat it, you know, and so there we are eating it, but we're not really eating it, you know, we're kind of eating it neurotically, but we're afraid that we might have be contaminated by it. I mean, there are so many different realities we could be experiencing for a while, depending on our tendencies. And mindfulness allows for us to basically taste, like when the intention comes to act out a particular way, let's say the prideful way, as that intention arises in the mind and it's seen with mindfulness, in a sense, we're tasting it. By seeing the intention, we're tasting its wholesomeness or unwholesomeness. Oh, that doesn't taste very good. I don't think I want to become that person who feels so full of themselves, being better than everybody else because they're not eating the candy bar. Or, you know, I don't. that doesn't feel so good to be the hungry ghost that just has to grasp unconsciously and throw into its mouth whatever might taste good. You know, I don't need to be that person. And we can maybe find, you know, a person that in, intention in the mind that actually tastes good, that isn't agitating, that isn't disturbing. You know, whatever that might be, like you pick it up and, 
you put it in your pocket until there's an appropriate time or person, and you give it to the right person. You know, it's like uh, we can purify things like that. Like we might not find any non-neurotic way to eat that candy bar, but we can take it and give it to somebody and transmute it into really beautiful action. You know, some child that might really appreciate that candy bar, and you know, hand it to them, and we feel good, and the kid feels good. <coughs> And, and there's no, we haven't added to the mental formations because if there's mindfulness, it can be a very clean act. You know, so all that's left, the only re uh, residue is lightness. You know, the lightness of love or the lightness of peace or ease. It's like a clean thing with no clean action, with no trace. And see, you see how that breaks the chain. Because the only thing that continues the chain is if we create another identity for ourselves, another neurotic identity for ourselves. And the only way we can create a neurotic identity for ourselves, it requires aversion and greed or delusion. You can't have a sense of self without greed, aversion, or delusion. Denial, distraction is what I mean by delusion. I mean, just try to imagine a sense of self not based on greed, aversion, or delusion. So if we're not operating, like after that sense contact and the feeling that goes with it, if the intention we follow is an intention infused by wisdom or love, mindfulness, then by definition it won't have a trace. Because it's not infused, it doesn't have the qualities of aversion or greed or delusion there. So this is um, one of the things that uh, makes this easy. When you hear a talk like this or bump into this teaching, you know that feeling is important. And just to highlight this, you know the Buddha probably his most well-known talk on the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, he talks about being mindful like uh, four places to train, and the second place is with feeling tone. So body, just to, uh, you know, as a grounding. But then he emphasizes mindfulness of feeling tone. It's also one of the five aggregates. So the Buddha emphasized feeling quite a bit as a, something to highlight for our mindfulness to pay attention to. And we have to respect how easy it is for us, for the mind, I should say, to be confused by feeling tone. So start where it's easy. One of the reasons we sit in a calm, safe place, in a comfortable way, for a length of time that we feel comfortable is so that when feelings arise, pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality arise, we're less likely to be reactive than when we're out in the world and stronger aversive or stronger unpleasant states, stronger pleasant states arise for us. It's just very easy to be swept away. So the, the teaching is to learn to relax with feeling and to see it like I suggested in the guided meditation, to breathe in and to be aware whether this moment is pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. And to breathe out and be aware, is this moment pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? 
And remember, neutral can also be I don't know. So if you don't know, that's just part of what neutral is. Sometimes it's really neutral, and sometimes we haven't yet seen clearly enough to know whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Then we know, I don't know. We can know that, right? In any moment, we can know it's pleasant, unpleasant, or I don't know whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And then we can just see that that's an object. Just like the sensations of the breath at the nostrils can be an object, we can know that touching or the breath in the belly or the sensations of the body generally. We can also know feeling tone. Like, how is the mind interpreting the present moment experience? Pleasant? Unpleasant? Don't know. And we really taste that, relax with that, and practice being stable and non-reactive with the feeling tone. Just mindful, just knowing, really emphasizing the knowing of the feeling tone. And unavoidably, knowing the feeling tone is going to trigger, or not so much trigger, but it's going to bring to the surface all of the conditioned responses for that particular feeling tone. There's nothing we can do about it. So for example, when I'm feeling leg pain or knee pain, if I'm being mindful with that, the, the unpleasantness of that knee pain, there are going, there's going to be just a stream of impulses and that stream of impulses is, is going to arise out of the past conditioning. In a sense, this is how the past informs the present moment. By what arises in conjunction with our present moment experience. So the present moment is made up both of what's actually happening right now and in a way that we can't exactly separate out, it's also being made up of how the past is informing the present moment. What is arising out of our mental conditioning due to the sense contact and the feeling that's arising right now. The past then manifests as how we feel about this moment. Does that make sense? So that's, in fact, the only way the past affects us. It only affects us as the feeling, the way we perceive and feel this moment. And if we can be stable, mindful with all of that, all of the way this moment is being informed by the past as we're experiencing this moment, that's why Jack Cornfield calls this chapter the river of feeling, right? Because normally we try to freeze things up because it gives us the semblance of control. You know, so what do we do? We tighten the body because that's the easiest thing to freeze up. We tighten the body. So with mindfulness, there's a real emphasis on relaxation. We need to be both vividly clear, alert, bright, and profoundly trusting, relaxed, allowing things to be. So in that place of relaxation, we're allowing the river. See, it's a river because the past informs the present moment by moment. So it's not like it informs it and then it's done, because it's got to inform the next moment and inform the next moment. So it's a flow of feeling, a flow of perception and feeling, just moving, moving, moving. Now, 
This is a powerful place in practice when we go from sort of a more static kind of mindfulness where it's like this, it's like this, it's like this now, to where it's really a river. And the reason why it's a real uh, great, uh, even beautiful step in practice is it's a lot scarier for us to be in a river than to be this, because then we go, okay, I got it, I got it, I know what I'm doing, it's like this, okay, I'm in control. It's like this now, now the moment's like this. And in a way, it's like this, and then we define it, and we hang out with our conceptual definition for a few seconds or minutes or whatever, until we say, now it's like this, now this is who I am. So we're in that, we're really taking rebirth. And then we have to die, and it has all kinds of implications we take birth as the guy who needs to know how it is, the guy who needs meaning, who needs to define who he is in relationship to his experience. But when we're in that river of feeling, of perception, then we're, we're abandoning the need to be a somebody, and we become, in a sense, the movement of experience, the movement of feeling, the movement of perception. And we're really taking that movement as a refuge. And it's a real art. It takes a lot of fearlessness, a lot of kind of uh, steadfastness, like starting over again, coming back and letting go, coming back and letting go. Not coming back kind of in like being in trench. Okay, now I'm here. But we have to come back in a very soft, nimble, trusting way, like willing to be sort of pushed about by things. Not pushed about in terms of being reactive, but like um, inviting the heart to move, inviting the mind to move, inviting the sensation of the body to move, and and basically uh, having an intuitive sense that uh, the uh, recognition or the uh, experience of movement is in the, the direction of Dhamma, the way it is. And when things feel solid and set, then it's generally we're caught in some birth where somebody who thinks it's like this and then the mind conceptualizes, freezes it up to kind of give itself some sense of ground, some sense of protection. This is from Habis, this Persian poet from many hundreds of years ago, a translation of one of his poems. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. So there's something about being with pain, being with feeling, that if we can hang out there, you know, it really loosens things up, tenderizes the heart, frees up the heart. You may have a sit where there's just a lot of emotional pain, physical pain, or joy. It doesn't have to be just the unpleasant stuff, or a lot of numbness, you know, but you're really there with the feeling. So the numbness has life. It's not, it's like numb, and then numb, and then numb. So it's not like your mind is conceptualized, oh, I'm numb. So we take rebirth as the numb guy. It's like numb. It's really alive. So like every moment, it's this is how it is. This is what's being known. So
So at the end of the sit, it may feel like you've been through hell and back, but there's something profoundly freeing about that kind of work, that kind of practice. I've had retreats that have been like that. I've certainly had a lot of sits that have been like that. And it's liberating. It isn't like I feel deadened by that kind of work or beat up by that kind of work. There's something that gets loosened when we're willing to be in that river of sensation, river of feeling, river of of perception, just the movement, even if it's not to our liking. And it really helps to correct our sense of what the practice is. Because generally, you know, we get into the practice because we think we're going to get into a really good place and hang out there. And, you know, it happens sometimes, but that's not what the practice is. The practice is about uh, revolutionizing or transmuting that idea about getting to some safe, beautiful place. And instead, uprooting the person who needs that safe, pleasant place, uprooting its existence. Because it's, it's caused by this chain, this sort of co-arising thing we call a human being, co-arising in the experience of suffering. That's what defines human experience for all of us, I'm assuming. Whether you know it or not, so even if you don't think you're suffering, even if you think there is no stress in your body or mind now, that doesn't mean there isn't stress in your body or mind, it just means you're unaware of it. And this is really how it is almost all of the time for us. And it's simply because we are assuming that what we really want is safety in terms of like a pleasant experience that won't go away. And what the Buddha is suggesting is the real freedom, the real release we want is not to get away from the bad stuff and into something good. But the real release we want is freedom from having to be a person, a thing, that needs that kind of stability. Because that stability is not found anywhere. It's sort of a promise never kept. When do we find that permanent, lasting stability? It doesn't actually exist. And it, it can only be conceived of from an ignorant point of view. It's only somebody who thought they were permanent, a permanent entity apart from the flow of life that would demand from life some permanent ground. So this is a profound practice to come into the present moment, to begin over time as our meditation, as our daily mindfulness becomes more mature. Over time, we begin to recognize movement, the movement of sensation, physical sensation, feeling, perception, and we really key into the movement, and we learn to relax with it, and to be fearless. That's important, that fearlessness, really trusting it, relaxing with it. Let it move, let it move, let it move. And we uproot, by doing that difficult work, we uproot the sense of a somebody who needs something other than that movement. We learn how to be a human being in that movement, as opposed to the human being that's afraid of that movement, that insecurity. And then we become, uh, what the Buddha would say, 
extinguished, you know. Nibbana or nirvana means the cessation, the full nibbana, you know, full enlightenment means the cessation of the person who needs stability, who needs sort of permanent, pleasant, is seeking a permanent, pleasant place. It's the kind of person that can be anywhere at any time, and it's okay. May not be pleasant, but they're not seeking a permanent, pleasant place. They know how to let pain move. They know how to let neutrality move. They know how to let pleasantness move. They're not grasping after feeling. See, do you get the sense right now, as a conventional human being, our whole existence is built upon pleasantness and unpleasantness, right? Whether it's mental pleasantness or physical pleasantness, that's what we're really after. And that's kind of what, you know, you could say is our animal nature. As animals, you know, and human beings, of course, are animals. So I don't mean anything mean or spirited about animals. And some animals are probably more evolved than we are. I mean, some non-human animals. But So there's a spectrum. But what I'm saying that one mode of existence is this total fixation dependence on pleasantness and avoiding unpleasantness. And all of our skill, all of our mental attention is focused on that. Even when we get distraction, it's all about like uh, a means to avoid unpleasantness. I'm just going to absorb into this book or this TV show for a while or to this eating food for a while in order to get a break. So it's just a way, another kind of attempt at pleasantness. Now, can we? are we willing to open our mind that there's another mode, another way of being that isn't around this orientation toward pleasantness? But basically, an orientation of, of uh, letting things move, letting pleasantness come and go when it does. So it's not like we're afraid of pleasantness or avoiding it, but we're, we're seeking a happiness of not being dependent on feeling states. Right now, as a self, we assume we're totally dependent on feeling states. Like when it's unpleasant, I'm unhappy, right? Happiness is completely correlated with pleasantness or unpleasantness. Are we willing to open our mind to happiness that's independent of pleasantness and unpleasantness? So the happiness has a stability because it's not tied to what comes and goes. Pleasantness and unpleasantness as a human being will come and go, right? Because it's just built into the fabric of which nobody is in control of, you know, Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. Sometimes there are mosquitoes, sometimes there are not. Sometimes it's muggy, sometimes it's just right, like today. Sometimes people like us, sometimes they don't. And there's really nobody who can control all of that. And it's really stressful to try to. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes left. It'd be nice to hear if you have some thoughts from your own practice you'd like to share with the group or questions about the talk tonight. This is a pretty uh, subtle teaching, so don't worry if it doesn't all make sense. If you're ever interested, we do do a Buddhist studies class on this once every several years, eight-week class just on feeling. So what comes to mind? I had to uh, I had to drive 
home to Oshkosh, Wisconsin over the weekend, the idea of the, the selves constantly jumping ship to the next self, um, something I've been reading about and really tried to experiment with because I was dreading this drive. And I started dreading it a good five weeks or five days before I did the drive. I was dreading having to go to a long meeting all weekend, dealing with my parents all weekend, you know, driving back. And uh, instead, it turned into a really uh, interesting experience because I, every time I felt myself getting tight on this drive, I reminded myself to just be present in the now. And uh, when I was driving, I was driving. And my parents and I were together. We were together. And um, everything was just a lot. Um, there just wasn't the friction. Yeah. And it turned out to be an absolutely, the experience of it was absolutely phenomenal. It was a wonderful weekend. But, uh, prior to that, I mean, I was, that type of an experience would have been very challenging. If we're really in the moment, the sort of, in a sense, the birthing and dying is happening, happening so quickly that there's no attachment or grieving of our many lifetimes, <laughs> you know. But when we get attached, then we get set for a while, we get established, and then it really hurts when that's, you know, I'm the one who doesn't want to be with my parents, you know. And yet, the time goes on, and you're there. So that person dies, you know, and I'm still the one who doesn't want to. And it's so exhausting to be born into these different contracted states over and over again. But when we're really in the, in the flow, you know, it's like we have cliches that really point to this ex these experiences of, of being in the moment. It's very light and freeing. Thanks for sharing that. Other thoughts, questions that come to mind? Yeah, remind me of your name. Uh, Brian. Um, you know, I don't have any trouble sitting and drawing with you. One of the unpleasant ones come up, emotional, particularly. There's a, there's a thought in the back of my mind that this is, that this is harmful to the organism. Mm -hmm. If you see that, you're like, I shouldn't let this go on because this is really doing something uh, negative to my mind or body or Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, there's a couple things there. <clears throat> One thing is, in effect, it probably is harmful if we get identified with that unpleasantness and then proliferate around it, because it's like we're creating a bigger groove. And as we get reborn into that contracted state, it entangled, the mind becomes more entangled, energetically entangled. The Buddha once said, you know, the world is entangled in a knot. Who can untangle this knot? You know, but that's how it gets entangled. But that's—it's not feeling that unpleasantness that causes the entangling. It's the misunderstanding the unpleasantness and becoming the person that needs to do something about the unpleasantness. That's what creates the entangling. So the question is. Can you be with the unpleasantness in a relaxed and clear way? If you can, it's very healing. 
And, but, and, and it really sets up an insight where we actually realize, Brian, in a moment that opening to sometimes very strongly unpleasant states doesn't destroy, doesn't harm the mind or heart. Because it, it will appear as if it will based on our past conditioning. Because we've been told that lie. We've been telling ourselves that lie. Because that's part of the conditioning, is that pain is dangerous. Pain isn't dangerous. Pain is just pain. It's just, it's just pure information. In the moment, present moment information. It's just energetic information. It's neither good nor bad. What makes it destructive is when the mind reacts to it in a destructive way. So can the mind relate to it in a non-destructive way? Well, mindfulness is how to receive that information in a non-destructive way. And again, sometimes pain is an important signal to move, like the house is burning, I should leave. And so the recognition of pain, uh, that information sometimes will result in appropriate action, and sometimes it doesn't require any action. It just requires mindfulness. But in any case, we want mindfulness, and then maybe action, and maybe not action. So I'm not saying that we don't, re we don't respond to pain, but that we receive pain with mindfulness. Really trust, like to let it in, to like, this is good information. I really want to let the pain, that information, kind of move through the mind and body, not to restrict its movement, to really let it express itself, to allow it to be felt. This appears to be dangerous. You're absolutely right. The question is, is it actually dangerous? And there's only one way to find out. We need to experiment. Hopefully, first with things that aren't overwhelmingly painful, and then as our confidence builds with things that are more intensely painful. Yeah, yeah thanks for the good question, Brian. Other thoughts? A few more minutes. Yeah, Kevin. Well, just on that last thought, uh, a lot of times, when I have pain that lasts a long time, it, you know, it seems that way. I'll start to think, like, is there also joy here or happiness? Those are really gratifying times. Because sometimes I do it both at the same time. It's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Really, uh, sometimes I kind of care because it feels like I'm trying to sneak away, but uh, for the most part, I feel like sometimes I can just Yeah, and you bring up a really, it's subtle, but I think a really important point that maybe some people will find useful. So <clears throat> sometimes the uh, physical or emotional pain will have some resonance, some momentum. So it's not, it's going to be there for a while, and there's really nothing we can do about it. Because, you know, sometimes the sense contact or sense experience, the causes for that are way beyond our control. You know, like if we've had a lot of trauma in our childhood or if we're in a really, like a war zone or just have a bad physical injury, the, the sort of repetitive uh, nature of the pain could be, you know, happen for a while. And so then what will happen is we think we're being mindful of the pain, but in a subtle way we've created the, an identity we've solidified as somebody who's got a lot of pain to deal with, you know. So by asking yourself 
and, you, and the way you did it, a skillful question like, was this all there is? It can help break the mind free of that established identity, which we don't even know is there. We just take it as normal. We don't see it as something extra. And all of a sudden, we're fresh again in the moment because you asked that question. And then the moment starts to feel alive, and we realize that, yeah, there may be a moment of pain, a moment of pain, and then a moment of joy, like the joy of seeing that pain moves, you know, or just some other expression of joy. This is the thing about most feeling states. They don't last that long when we're mindful. They only appear to last long because we're not being mindful. It doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of pain in life, but there are a lot of other things in life besides just physical pain or emotional pain. Even if we're having a lot of depression or a lot of anxiety, if we're really honest, really mindful, we'll see there are a lot of other qualities of feelings besides that unpleasant anxiety. But the trouble is we get an identity that we then recreate over and over again that I am the anxious person, I am the depressed person. And it, in a way, it uh, doesn't allow the mind to perceive anything else because it doesn't fit its concept, its story. Anything quick? Otherwise, we'll leave it here. Great. So we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Willing to relax with the feeling state, the heart, the mind, sensation, and allowing things to be. being inspired, this freedom of not needing to be reborn into this or that, just to be radically present, alive in the changing moment. May this be a cause for the deepest wisdom and the deepest compassion. And may our lives be part of the causes and conditions leading to real peace and happiness in our hearts and in the world. Thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight. Really nice to see everybody here. Kevin is our program host tonight. Thanks, Kevin. He has a few announcements for the community.